Good morning. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Hollywood Heritage Museum. My name is Brian Cooper. I'm the publicity chair here at Hollywood Heritage, and it's my honor to welcome you this morning to um, a historic building. How many of you have never been here before? Oh, wow. Well, welcome. Thank you for coming. A lot of people said, you know, I drive by here all the time, and I don't know what goes on in there. And, you know, usually we're just in here just partying pretty hard. But... Um, <laughs> you know, pounding back some beer skis. But today we're doing a program um, and we're thrilled that the Property Masters Guild is here with us. Um, this building actually has an amazing history and some of that history is, is told through photographs as you walk in, um, but it's moved around quite a bit. So if you were here back in the 1910s, Anybody? Okay. Um, then you remember it was a horse barn um, and that it was at the corner of Selma and Vine. And then um, a guy named Cecil B. DeMille was like, I need an office space. And there wasn't a whole lot of buildings back then, so he's like, I'm just going to repurpose this horse barn, and me and my pal Jesse Lasky are going to start making movies here in Hollywood. So they made the very first feature-length film in and around this building. It's called The Squaw Man. And... Um, that film sort of kicked off their um, their movie business and um, it was a big hit. And um, so they continued to make films. And then when they got too big for the barn um, and they decided to move over to the Paramount lot, they took this building with them. It was their lucky charm. And they thought, you know what, we're just going to keep it around. So you may see this building. It was in the western town. And so it's, uh, if you're watching an episode of Bonanza, you'll be like, hey, wait a minute. It's that building. How did it get around? Well, then um, they decided decided to build New York Street on the back lot, and uh, once again, this building was um, up for grabs. So it was moved over to the Capitol Records um, parking lot, where it was living there for quite some time, and then Hollywood Heritage stepped in and said, you know what, we need a historic building, because this uh, very spot was designated for a Hollywood museum that never got built in the 1960s. So we're filling that bill. And um, so now we're the Hollywood Heritage Museum. Um, but basically, we say we're the, the birthplace of Paramount Pictures because everybody who um, worked in this building then were part of the famous Lasky players over at Paramount. So we're really proud to be a part of that Hollywood legacy and to have you here. And if you want to come back, it looks like a regular museum, but we moved all of these ex exhibits to the side so we could seat you all here. But please come back. Consider um, becoming a member. We rely on our members and our corporate sponsors to keep the lights on. We're all volunteers. We do it because we're passionate about Hollywood and Hollywood history, and hopefully you are too. Um, we have events here every month, and uh, this coming month, uh, actually, the end of this month on March 26th, we're doing what we called an afternoon at the barn. So you get to sleep in a little bit and come in around 2 o'clock. And we're doing Legacy of the Hollywood Blacklist. And uh, we're going to be having uh, documentary maker Judy Chaikin here with her award-winning PBS documentary about the blacklist. And we're going to actually have children of those people that were blacklisted talking about their experiences and how that affected their lives. It's going to be a really fascinating afternoon. That's Sunday, March 26th at 2 o'clock. And then in um, April, we're going to be hosting an evening at the barn on Wednesday, April 12th. And that's um, Fashion and Film of the TCM Film Festival 2023. And it's going to be hosted by author Kimberly Truller and 
uh, costume designer Mark Bridges, Oscar-winning costume designer Mark Bridges will be here. We're going to have costumes uh, from some of his films on exhibit at the front, and um, they're going to be talking about costume design in some of those films that will be shown at that festival. Um, so tickets will be available uh, for that coming up on Monday. Um, you can always uh, check our website for upcoming um, exhibits, information about um, upcoming programs, and uh, to become a member. So we are thrilled to have you here, and um, now it's my pleasure to welcome Hope Parrish, one of your people, the president of PMG. Come on up. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if I quite deserve that, um, our people, but I am surrounded right now by our people. And I don't want to be emotional, but I'm kind of tired. Um, we have a very amazing thing happening here. We have, for the first time in our lives, um, bringing together property masters and recognizing them for their amazing body of work and what they have done throughout their career. My father, Dennis Parrish, who's in the room, he's second generation doing props. I'm third. And when he started in the industry and things were different, in the 60s and 70s, he and some of his fellow property masters, Alan Levine and Terry Lewis and, I don't know, Dad, Ray Mercer and, I, I don't know, <laughs> the list is endless, Dick Rubin, tried to do this. And then in the 80s, Emily Ferry will tell you, we tried to do it again. When we were under conservatorship with New York, we had to find a place that we could talk, property masters could meet, and we tried it again. And then just about six years ago, there was a conversation with Josh Meltzer and Greg Bilson that started. And these two men brought in myself and Chris Call, and we began this journey of trying to unify us together, give us an opportunity to help our younger, uh, career-minded property masters that want to be property masters that didn't even know it was a career option, or for the ones that are in there to give them some sort of support that you're not always getting today with the large locals and people being so busy with their own things inside the union. We want to be able to embrace our, our young property masters and the future property masters. We have opening up this year, I, I, our sponsors, let me, let me back up, our sponsors, ISS, History for Hire, The Hand Prop Room, A1 Medical, Earl Hayes Press, um, sticky stuff. There's so many people that have been, been group. I mean, amazing kickoff party for us last year. We have the opportunity with our sponsors and our membership to do great things. We have the opportunity to make more of these events and camaraderie between the property masters. We've, we are beginning to open up regionally, which means that we will be inviting Vancouver and Texas and New Mexico and uh, New York and Philly to our, to our club to be part of what we're trying to do here, which is basically engaging in education and mentorship and diversity and wisdom and just carrying the message to that we do not lose our position in Hollywood. You know, the property master is kind of the quiet guy that makes things happen. He's kind of the guy who stands back in the background and when there's a problem, he's like, how much time do I have? What can I do to help? You know, we're, we're always present. We, we engage with every single department on a film crew. There is no department we do not engage with. And at the end of the day, 
We are now part of the Oscars. We are part of the Academy. There are eight members of Property Masters that are now in the design branch where we should have been for a long time, but we're finally there. You know, things are starting to happen, you know? And so therefore, you know, these films here have been nominated not just for Oscar potential in different categories, but these have been no nominated throughout the whole award season. And so today, I'm gonna step down. I just wanna welcome everyone. Thank our sponsors. Thank the people who have helped us grow in the past year and a half. We're only a year and a half old. And we're, we're babies compared to most nonprofits. But we depend on that kind of support from you, from our members, and from our sponsors. And um, today is a great day to honor Property Masters because there's some really great work up there. So. No further out of me anymore. I think today, just have fun and ask lots of good questions and um, enjoy our show. Thank you very much for coming. Hi, everyone. I'm Anna Lowsby. I've been a property master for about 10 years and a member of the Property Masters Guild for the past few. Uh, I want to thank everyone for coming out today, uh, for showing your support for property masters, these specific property masters and all property masters. Um, thank you specifically to History for Hire, ISS, and the Hand Prop Room for sponsoring this event today, and the Hollywood Heritage Museum for hosting us here. Uh, just a few housekeeping things, if you could please silence your cell phones. Uh, pictures are welcome, but please no video or audio recording. We are recording today's event for our podcast, Prop Talk, the official podcast of the Property Masters Guild, uh, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so, uh, Today will be an episode. All of our property masters uh, have either already recorded separate interviews or will in the sh uh, near future record uh, episodes of Prop Talk, so you'll get to hear a little bit more from them uh, on your listening devices. Uh, for any photos you take today, please tag us on Facebook uh, or on Instagram or at underscore the PMG. Um, and you know, please take photos ask questions. Uh, today we're celebrating the achievements, like Hope said, of these prop masters uh, whose work is, uh, while they are not necessarily individually nominated for Academy Awards or other awards, their work certainly is. Uh, so today we have Gay Perello of Babylon, <laughs> Joshua Bramer of Everything Everywhere All at Once, Chris Peck of Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Brad Elliott of Avatar, The Way of Water. And joining us virtually from Atlanta, uh, we have Andrew M. Siegel, many of you know him as Andy, uh, with The Fablemans. So we'll hear from each of these prop masters individually. Some of them have some pretty cool visual aids as well. Uh, and then we'll get them all up here together to answer your questions and some of our questions uh, that were submitted to, uh, to our PMG Instagram. Uh, so without any further ado, uh, why don't we get started? Okay, why don't you join us up here? Hi. Hi. 
Thank you. I first have to say, this is so <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, seeing all these people here. Thank you all for coming out. All right. So uh, many of you have seen the movie, and now you've all seen the trailer. Uh, Babylon is uh, a film that takes place in the silent era, kind of an appropriate place to um, oh, yeah. watch such a thing here. Uh, what sort of research did you need to do for the film? Um, Gaillard on Instagram, who's Kuthon underscore RG, um, <laughs> uh, also asks, when you're doing a period film, when do you get something antique versus a fake or making it yourself? Um, that's a great question. I, I think for this film, um, I had to lock myself in my house for a week to break it down completely. Um, it was just the volume of stuff. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go here and get this, I'm going to get this. It was just the volume of the amount of props that were on this were a little different than what I was normally doing, a lot different. Um, so I had to um, break down, I used yellow notepads, and this would be a big set, and this would be a big set, and this is a big set, and I knew that I could always get the smalls later but what was going to have to be made and what was out there. And after I had a really decent amount of information on my notepads, where now it's, I start making the calls. Who's got what? You know, um, because you kind of want to, you want to first see, you don't want to start off the bat making something if it exists out there. You know, if we can get our hands on it and it's real, I want to I use that. Now, unless we're going to throw it in somebody's face, then you're going <laughs> to have to make it, right? So um, the research took quite a while, and we were on it. And I knew once I had more people on, we can really dive into it. But um, we have these wonderful resources of um, Sears catalogs that I would get order and get just for the everyday stuff to wrap my brain around, um, look at images just to kind of burn the image of the time period in my head so that when I was out shopping, I could recognize and go, I think that's the right time period. And then you double check it. And then as I look at these people and this person and that group over there, you know, um, History for Hire, we did a whole walkthrough of all the cameras. I didn't know what the hell I was doing with those <laughs> cameras, right? So they gave me an actual literal education on what cameras to use and all the film equipment. and I. Greg over here, he was one of my first meetings as well, sitting down there, it's like sitting at the table just going, what do we got? You know, what exists? My team right over there from Hand Prop Room, I mean, just beautiful instruments and intricate stuff. These guys, I'll get emotional. <laughs> <laughs> they had my back and I'm sorry, I have this weird DNA thing where I cry. <laughs> when I get emotional about talking about people that I love. They had my back and I'm here because of their help and their support and um, yeah, I mean they, they do what I need. So speaking of your research, we have a few of your uh, mood boards that you put together. Um, here we've got Ruth Adler, the scripts and storyboards, uh, some of the battlefield stuff. Um, let's actually talk a little bit about that battlefield sequence, uh, the silent movie shoot. Yeah. Now, my understanding is you had over 1,000 
background. Yes. Um, so when, when you approach a scene like that where every single person needs some kind of prop, whether that's a movie camera or, uh, you know, the at the time script girl with her desk uh, or all of these this Roman legion, um, and then you have on top of that some of the biggest A-list actors in Hollywood. Uh, what? How do you organize a shoot like that? The the days that you're you're shooting those huge scenes. Yeah. Um, also, this was early, early on in the schedule. Um, we were a twelve-week shooting schedule, and this was week two. So that was one of the first things that I worked on. Um, first of all, uh, Damien Chazelle, our director, had. Um, research prior and he had a mood of what he wanted this to look at and he has had some films to suggest. One was Battle on the Ice and Joan of Arc. I screen grabbed that movie and was like if I can recreate this then I know that I'm doing my job. If I can recreate all those props that are in those and then have you know, bring in certain color and, and whatnot, because we were also filming, you can tell, I mean, we were at Big Sky where it's just dirt and tan. And I felt like even though they're doing silent films and they're black and white, we we're gonna see this in color. I wanted to put some color in there, starting with the flags, the shields that we had made, the, what I call the horse schmatas that Jeannie Joe over here painstakingly <laughs> made. Um, so here's the spear with Gabby Penanuri, who is here um, making these spears. Now, here's the other thing. We, there are prop within a prop, right? I mean, so I had to figure out, we can't really hurt people, but they're supposed to look like they hurt people, but they're also supposed to be props of the time period. So that was a little figuring out what materials we're gonna make them out of. Um, I'm not gonna lie, there's a lot of toys on that battlefield. <laughs> 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 painted to look real. Yeah. So. Uh, so when you approach a day like that, uh, how, how do you run your crew? How many people do you get to be uh, on set with you? Yeah, so this film, I was going to carry a crew of seven throughout. It did not make sense for me to have on certain days when we didn't need a bunch of people to cut them because we were always prepping and wrapping. So once I got that approved through the producers, which was a, a great thing, then we had some day um, players come out for those extra big days, but my main crew were on in the prep and I was able to delegate to them, because um, you can't do this by yourself, people. Um, had to delegate them like, okay, your battle weapons, you, Julie and Gabby, Julie's my right arm for 20 years. Um, she's the on set with the actors, all of their props, Gabby supported her. Uh, Paul Baker, splinter unit, right? You know, going to, um, and then having three to four other people making our moves. We had to move all of the, um, uh, there was a sunset, sunset shot that we needed to get every single day. So we had to bring all the instruments up. It was a 75 person orchestra. <laughs> up from the bottom of the hill every day before sunset. So that was a tough one. So that's yeah. big day. Yeah, those are big days. Big, big day for a yeah. lot of days in a row. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, as we can see this photo up here, you have a, a snake on your neck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about the animal wrangling in this film? Uh, like specifically this scene, you have this snake attacking multiple people. Um, and so what was your process of working with the animal wrangler, working with the actual snake to keep the actual snake safe, keep the actor safe? Uh, how, many, how many versions of this guy did you do? 
Well, we could afford two. Um, <laughs> you know, normally you would have several, but we could afford two, so we made a lot out of that snake. Um, this is interesting. This was a little further in the schedule, so I could kind of wrap my brain around it. I knew that Damien hated CGI, and that was the original thought. Um, uh, visual effects had come in, and they were talking about making, and I'm like, well, I really think we can get some of this stuff in camera. I really do. Um, Jules Sylvester had a snake that they had always planned on us filming a close-up of him, but I went, we measured his snake um, <laughs> as much as we could, <laughs> and um, got that over to Creature Effects, who Mark Rappaport I've been working with for years. He makes great animals, by the way. Um, I said, have you ever made a snake that can, you know, attack? Or, and he goes, yeah. <laughs> like, great, do you have it? No. I'm like, so with trust, because I've known him, we were able to talk Damien into, why don't we make some of these shots puppeted, right? So he was able to make an identical to the snake that was real that we shot. And we had two guys there that were able to do that grab from the neck. And then we had it, so that was one snake. This is the second one that can attach and she can run around with it holding it. And it's also the snake that, um, you can't see it there, but it has a little slice in it around the neck where Lady Faye can come and use her knife and, and cut it off. And it's connected with magnets. Oh, that's really cool. And then we just had a head piece that was on her neck for the part that widens out. Uh, it's a very cool sequence. But as I was watching <laughs> it, I was going, how did she do this? Yeah, that was fun. Uh, now, with a film like this, like we all know, this was huge. Uh, but do you have any particular favorite prop from from the whole film? Okay, you know we all hate this question because they're all <laughs> yes, our I babies. Yes, I do. But everyone um, wants to know. <laughs> oh God! Um, I asked my crew. I texted them. I said, "You know they're going to ask that question. What's my favorite prop?" And they were going down the list. <laughs> we were going down the list. Let's list that one, that one, that one, that one. And um, I ended up with um, Sydney's trumpet. It was the first prop that I bought, and it was the first, he, Sydney, um, Javon needed to rehearse with this from the get-go so that he could look like he knew what he was playing. I provided three different trumpets, and Damien fell in love with this one, and so did I. It's really beautiful in person. It gets kind of blown out in the movie. You can't see all the engraving and the detail, and then it has the two tones where the, um, what do you call those, are. <laughs> so, that's my favorite. Uh, well, excellent work on this film. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Gay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, please welcome up Josh Bramer, Everything Everywhere All at Once. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming out. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, this film is a really fun adventure. There's, I've never seen anything quite like it. It's genre-bending. Uh, there's different times, different places, different iterations of each character. Uh, what was your thought upon first reading the script, and how did you approach breaking it down? Uh, well, the first time I read it, I was actually in Hawaii, and I got reached out by our art director, and they sent it over, and it was actually not a numbered script, so there was no scene numbers involved with any of the scenes. And it was, 
it was a little bit hard to follow because every time we went into a different universe, it would just say ding. So I was like, ding, hot dog hands, ding. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to break this down. I'm like, so I, it, I think I started like two weeks after I got the script. And once I did, it, it still didn't make sense a little bit, with the, even with the scene numbers. But uh, the Daniels just have a way of like, even if you're like confused about one little thing, they already have it in their head how they're going to film it, how it's going to go. And the amount of work that was involved with, you know, breaking down each one of these universes, they were like the 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 guiding light in the sh <laughs> in the night to uh, you know take us to where we needed to be, and it was just a fun experience all around. Yeah, uh, yeah fun to watch. Too. <laughs> yeah, uh, so something that's particularly interesting um, is the technology that's used to kind of jump through each universe uh, that seems to originate with the Alphaverse. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about designing that technology? Well, the core of it is is the Alphaverse. That's where everything they're trying to get to, you know, figure out how to solve this problem of Jobutupaki. And we kind of had like just the idea that everybody would verse jump through Bluetooth. And it was, it, there was never like this, oh my gosh, it's a crazy technology that, you know, this is how they learned how to uh, verse jump. But it ended up being just all they had did, like we had to basically figure it out from the, the beginning. And it was just a simple explanation of, you know, if anybody's wearing a Bluetooth headset, you could jump into their body. <laughs> and it, it felt like it was a mashup of like all of my favorite films, like The Matrix, you know, and, you know, coming come to uh, come this idea. And when we, uh, made a lot of the props for them in that van, I saw the costume that he was wearing. It was basically like a uh, microchip vest. And then I had these helmets done that were just, we used a lot of hot glue and, and blinky lights. And it just felt like this is something they just made. And there was no like high tech technology that would have to be involved with. They had CRT monitors that just were playing like Windows 95, like fish tank screensavers sometimes. It was great. And it just felt like it all existed in the same universe. And that's usually what it came down to was, if it felt like it lived in that universe, it did. And it, even uh, with the hot dog hands, um, the color palette was hot dog. So like uh, <laughs> when, <laughs> when, at, when Jamie was like, they were getting into their fight and she was moving out and I had to get some luggage, I was like, okay, this is like hot dog colored luggage. And it, it just, it felt like she lived there, but we always, there was never like, well, when she when she leaves, they you don't use their hands for anything. They use your feet. So she's going to hook her foot to the bottom of the luggage and hobble out. It was like these ideas just came naturally whenever we were doing it. Like when Jamie was playing the piano with her toes, I was like, oh, sorry. Uh, when Jamie was playing the piano with her toes, I'm like, let's put your wrist guard on your foot <laughs> and then also put a watch on it. So it was like it, all of these ideas. And it was like with the Daniels, when you bring up something to them, it's like a fun, like, almost like whose line is it anyway moments for all this stuff. It's like, oh my gosh, and then they can do this and they can do that. So it was, it was fun to build these worlds. Like even on our tech scout, um, the scene where Michelle battles uh, the alpha jumper with the pipes, the, her picking up that keyboard and uh, Andy Lee stabbing it with the, that was all literally them just talking through the scene on a tech scout. And, you know, and then she picks up a laptop and throws it across the room and he hits it with the pipe and it blows in a million pieces. That wasn't in the script. Even the, the trophy, that originally was supposed to be, there was like this uh, inside IRS joke called uh, Pedactor, the pterodactyl. It was like a, um, a um, kind of like a, a 
a thing that represented the IRS. I'm not really sure, but it almost the the trophy almost was like a pterodactyl shape <laughs> at the beginning of all of that. But then they decided after I showed them some real ideas of what a um, trophy could look like, they, <laughs> they they settled on what we ended up going with. So there was a lot of ideas that always bounced around, and we always came up with like this brainstorm of ideas, and it landed on one. <laughs> Uh, so uh, kind of along that line, uh, if you're coming up with these ideas on Tech Scouts of, hey, let's uh, have her throw a keyboard and break a laptop and this pipe's going to go into a million pieces, uh, how then do you take your timeline and your budget and the considerations of your stunt team and your actors and make sure everyone stays safe while keeping that uh, improvisational uh, kind of energy? And that's, that's always hard, too, especially for a movie like this. Like, we didn't have $100 million. It was a, you know, a, a low-budget film. And the, the good thing about it, I, I, I had just gotten off of uh, a little movie called Blonde. <laughs> so I went from a extreme uh, generation period piece about some one person's life to this kind of a lower-budget movie that you know, called for uh, creativity, like creativity to come up with ideas that could be budget-conscious. And our special effects um, uh, head, I actually worked with him on Blonde. So when I came onto this, uh, he, uh, we were like starting to like brainstorm, how can we do this? How can we do that? And um, I went right to him, like when on the tech scout with the keyboard. I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna get a like a mauve covered like uh, colored keyboard, and what we'll just put a hole in it. And he's like, yeah, and then we'll just you know hot glue some uh, piece of cardboard, and I'll put some keys on there, and then we'll just poke it through. It was it was a lot of that kind of, I don't want to say low budget, but also like creativity uh, that went into making props on a budget constant, you know, uh, budget. So uh, it was great to be able to have my friends uh, from the beginning. And then also by the end of the movie, we were all really good friends. So we all knew how we would think about, you know, solving these problems if they ever came up. And with the Daniels, there was never a problem. It was, uh, <laughs> there was never a moment where I was like, oh my gosh, they're going to be mad because they didn't see this prop or, you know, there, there never was that. If we didn't have something that exactly what they wanted or it didn't work out, they would work around it and they'd put a smile on it and they just were always happy with everything that we did. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of really creative, like it has such a creative energy to the film. Um, something particularly that, uh, that sticks out in the film, uh, and this is a question from Ashley Leung on Instagram as smashley08. Uh, so there's a rumor, there was an article that came out uh, after the film uh, was in theaters that there was a shortage of googly eyes uh, because of this film. Uh, is there any truth to that rumor? And how many googly eyes do you think that you used? <laughs> um. I did hear that. I, I, I think that'd be kind of funny if I actually caused a uh, googly eye shortage. Um, because it's funny because um, I'm, in, I'm, I'm in this like, uh, like a photo sharing, like on Apple you can like put photos, but our whole crew and cast is in this. So along this journey, uh, we would put photos in there and a lot of the photos are just, everybody would just like take a photo of like somebody put eyes on like a biscuit, but they were like random places. And there's hundreds of these photos and we just loved how people would incorporate our little movie into like the real world. So I don't think I caused a shortage, but that could be it. Um, honestly, we didn't use that many googly eyes. I think I just like, bought like a bag on Amazon, but we had a ton of them. It was like probably like a 2000 googly eye bag, but we had so many different sizes and it was 
the Daniels, when we'd go into a set, because that's Wayman's way of, you know, he just wants to incorporate joy in everything that he does, the Daniels would just go and pop them on things, like on the bags. Like that wasn't like the, the, the set decorator wasn't in there putting those on there. They they were doing that. Like we'd, we'd just find a place to put them. So it, it almost kind of uh, art imitated life in the real world. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so on a slightly different topic, uh, something that this film has been praised for is its specificity in uh, portraying the Chinese-American immigrant experience. Uh, what was your process of research for that specifically? Did you, ha did you guys have a cultural consultant, or, or how did you bring that reality to the screen, to the characters? Well, we had a very diverse cast, and you know, if there was ever a question of like, would this actually, you know, does this feel authentic? We were able to go to them, and um, Key, uh, Key's wife, Echo, uh, she was kind of our um, Chinese translator, but she was like my right-hand person to go to if I ever had a question. So like we had a scene where um, uh, it was like the flashback with uh, Key and Michelle when they were younger, and there were like, I think kids playing with dice, or some, no, no, the, sorry, the, the scene where Michelle was wrestling, and like she gets paid by somebody with money. So they were like, oh, well, we have uh, Chinese currency. We just went to Hong Kong. Uh, I'll bring it to you tomorrow. I'm like, okay, cool. And they just brought me like money. Like uh, I just wanted everything to feel authentic. Like even if it was like on a um, words on a, a board, I'd, would this what it would say? And she'd be like, yeah, that's great. And you know, even like their home, um, we tried to incorporate everything. Like a fan with like little things on it. The TV that still has all the stickers on it. Like things that just felt authentic and so that when somebody watched that, they could relate to something in this movie. And I think that's where this movie is getting so much like accolades is because it's so many people relate to, you know, a, a mother-daughter story, a, you know, a divorce story. There's just so many things in this film that bring people to see it. And they've seen it seven or eight times and I don't think anybody's gonna stop watching it, which is amazing. And you know that's that's what brought this movie to where it is. And like you can watch every interview with Key and Michelle. There was a lot of passion that went into this film, and I think that's why I enjoyed working on it so much. Was because I walked away with not, you know, we didn't go into this film thinking we're making a blockbuster and we're going to do it for a lot of money. We walked, went into this movie making a fun film that everybody could enjoy, and everybody did. So, uh, last question, everybody's favorite. What's your favorite prop from this movie? Well, we had over like 200 hero props and like a hero prop is something that a main character will usually touch physically and I guess I could it wouldn't be one it'd probably be like a hero character and that would probably be Deidre played by Jamie Lee Curtis I loved everything about hers and I was able to like even with her wrist guard like put the watch on the outside and like her glasses and her necklace and all of that stuff she was great but also I loved all of Key's props because I love Key uh, his fanny pack is probably one of my favorite things because it was like his Mary Poppins bag. <laughs> <laughs> I love that fanny yeah. pack. Uh, thank you so much, Josh. You're Congratulations welcome. on the work. Thank you. Please welcome Chris Peck of Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. Hi there. Hi. Tell us about that puzzle box. <laughs> well, it's so Ryan Johnson, our director, has worked with a lot of the same crew. Oh, can we, we should hold that up for one second. Yeah, sorry about that. So Ryan has worked with the same uh, crew, production designer Rick Heinrichs. They did Star Wars in England. 
So this movie was going to be an English crew, and it had an English set decorator and prop master actually. But in England and Europe, the props don't necessarily, they're not, they're not, doesn't work the same as it does in the States. So <coughs> Rick Heinrichs, who Academy Award winning production designer, who invited me on, uh, we had, I was on Pirates with him and did some puzzles on that, suggested that they bring me in because there was some huge mechanical props like this. They didn't want to do it CGI. They uh, wanted to do it practical. So Rick, the production designer, reached out to me. I was wrapping up Amsterdam at the time. And... Um, um, so we went on to that. So uh, I, I thought this would be kind of fun. We never do this to see how the. By the way, Pam, uh, you saw Aaron Brockovich whenever they tried to run Julia off the stage. And thank you. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so uh, it's we can start this. So the only thing that really existed, Brian had all the storyboards, everything in the script. It was all done. Uh, Rick was working on. Um, all the images so they and we had a model guy an illustrator out of England and so I had the script I had storyboards and started off and had this and was told it needed to be practical so I went to studio art technology and I'm talking to Lewis and I'm showing him this and he's like oh yeah well we haven't done stuff practical like that in 20 years it's all visual effects now and I'm like no Lewis the only reason I'm on this film is because of we got to do it practically if you see this box right there that the, just in that last photo it was dark and one of the things rick wanted to do was a dark box but it has the magic eye and so we had to change it to this i get hold of the owner of the company and um tell her we need magic eye so the, all that was practical seeing the arrow and the button push and she came up with this design we got some uh veneer uh, birch veneer and we printed on it we found a company uh that it could actually print on it and so once we did that, that was a huge uh, obstacle to overcome. And um, the next thing, uh, so printing and be able to do the magic eye was big. I'm talking to Lewis. You can see my look on my face. I'm not so sure about what Lewis <laughs> is telling me. But I'm like, Lewis, how do we open this thing up? And he says, nah, we'll do a gear. And I'm like, what do you mean a gear? So then he says, no, there's four gears. So weeks later, I'm in Greece. I'm in Belgrade, and I get this video. And I know at that moment it was a huge win you know that's all about the little wins that you get so the first was printing the magic eye on on veneer okay second thing was the that box being able to open practically like that that was huge so uh and these puzzles i knew we were gonna that that to me the little puzzles that you're seeing i knew all that was going to work out fine the next big thing is to get it to okay how do we do that and that may have been the toughest thing if you can see they're spinning different directions yeah against see each that? other yeah, they're spinning different directions. So SAT, they'll do an uh, exploded view. They'll have a call out and exactly how they're going to build this. So everything on this puzzle box, you can see they do color coding so that when they have the meetings in the morning and, um, you know, they send the guys off to build it. So this is it. This is the first video that we had. This was another win. You know, as prop masters, you're looking at those little wins. I was like, okay, we can get it open. We know we can open it practically. We know we can get it to spin. And um, they used this box here, uh, built this box to control it. I want to show it one more time because it's pretty cool. So 98% uh, of this box is, is done practically. The only thing, like the seams, um, or they cleaned up seams on the top or maybe the gears that you see on the side of the box we painted those out but all the action that you see was all done practically um, so again there's the puzzles at the second time after it spins those are pretty straightforward 
a lot of inserts. We had to actually get the camera down inside on some of these, on the splinter unit stuff we were doing at the film. So you can see, like, just getting the camera down there. So I'm working closely with SAT, and Lewis has the storyboards. He's, um, you know, they know exactly what they're building. That's, that Brian Johnson doesn't deviate from the storyboards or the script. So that was a bit, that right there that you saw was a big cheat, going from the puzzles to this. That, that's not physically possible, so that's obviously a big CGI thing, going between the two. And uh, again, you know, I sh wanted to show you the, the, the sausage being made, but this is the call out again. The SAT would, you know, when they're having their meetings and say, here's how we're going to do it, guys. Um, and each part listed over here on the side. Then there's, you know, there's the color palette and all that. And Rick Heinrichs is very, very involved. Everything, you know, goes through him. So getting the Pantone charts, going down to um, International Silk and Woolens, pulling fabric. Now I'm over in Belgrade, so I have to have two pieces, one for me to have meetings and one for uh, Studio Graphics Inc. Then we got to silk screen it. And as you can see, as you spin it, the color changes. So you just as soon as you think that you've got it all approved and figured out, I'm seeing this and I'm like, oh my God, it's, you know, Rick's gonna hate it. But they ended up really liking uh, the, silk, the color palettes that we used. And then here's the note at the end. I just, I, I put all this together on a plane where I last night, I came home from a shoot down in the Caribbean, but uh, sorry, it's not more professional. But then the splinter unit, we got all the, I have a prop shop, all the puzzles laid out, and we have storyboards for every shot um, you can see we're actually doing this on practically on camera there's a green rod dan spaulding the system prop master he's here today so that's how we would do it there's ryan johnson and then this stuff would be cleaned up that gets removed right but otherwise it's all done practically what a cool prop <laughs> I, I think we can all agree what a cool prop uh, so, as you're saying, you had kind of two different versions, one that opened up and spun and did the puzzles, and another that uh, opened up and had the invitation in the center. Um, for those of you who have seen the film, there's also a puzzle that gets destroyed. Um, ultimately, how many different puzzles did you have made, um, and what were, other than these two functions, what were the functions of each? So there was six boxes total. And what I'll do on every movie now is when we have an action prop like this um, that's going to be expensive, involved, you've got to be really, you know, careful about how you, you approach. So there were six boxes. There's the carrying box that you come in with. There's the opening box. Then there's the um, spinning box. So once it's open, the puzzles, they literally you can lift it out, put the other one in. It's, you know, it all becomes, um, you can switch back and forth very easily. So then there's the spinning box. Then there's the box that opens up and becomes the, 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 the onion that opens up with the note. And then there's the smashing box. I, I think that's six. So what you do is on the storyboards, you literally highlight the, like with a highlighter, I'll color the box. Um, and then I'll just put a little number at the top. That's box one, box one, box one. So the first 24 frames of the movie, of that sequence, by the way, the entire first act was was the puzzle and that was kind of the pitch from Rick Heinrichsen from Ryan Johnson was you know it's the opening of the movie and but you know I'm used to people that change things they're like no we're not going to change a thing and then it didn't matter when Rick said grease you know that's what they had me there but there's six boxes and we shot all that on a insert uh, stage a sound stage in Belgrade Serbia did I answer your question yes you did that was <laughs> Um, so six total. Now you're talking about uh, 
there's people who are from England, the production from England, you're in Belgrade, you're shooting in Greece, you have SAT here in Los Angeles. Uh, now, if we all recall 2020, 2021, um, shipping was a bit of a problem. We had a lot of shortages of different items. How did you manage uh, that situation uh, in a global pandemic, needing to find these very specific silks and uh, different items and getting them in between uh, SAT in Los Angeles, Belgrade, Greece. Uh, what was your process with that? Um, interesting because you're right. It was, um, I started April 2nd, 2021, I think. Um, I literally come off Amsterdam one day and the next day I was on, on this. And I, you know, I'm used to coming in and meeting with Louis Stodi at Studio Art Technology a lot, just sitting right there with him and, and working it out. And um, I couldn't even get in his office. Like, we had to do things by Zoom. And Lewis would be like, when does it work? I'm like, well, we shoot the, the puzzles, shoot August 25th. And he's like, oh, yeah. You know, and I'm like, no. Nah. <laughs> so, I mean, that was a huge concern. So here I am on a Zoom, and I'm like, oh, yeah, no problem. And um, so now I'm in Greece, and I'm like, hey, how are we doing? You know, and really, so to answer your question, it becomes um, a lot of people talk about the art of the film, and as John Ford once famously said, um, you know, it's, I never really looked at it as art as much as it's, it's, a, it's a job, you know, it's work. And in instances like this, you know, it is art, but also as my wife kind of pointed out on the way down here, it's a, you're a project manager, you know, and, and so much so on um, these movies I've seen to be doing lately, and I don't know why, but like you're, you're the shipping, for example, um, and uh, so I'm telling Lewis, yeah, so he goes, August 25th. I go, no, but it's got to be on a plane July 25th, you know, and or actually I want it for two weeks just to play with it. So I need it six weeks before then. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, man, we got to get going. I go, yeah. So um, shipping is, is a huge deal and you get and just managing the project and being on the phone and Zoom every day. And Greece, I think it's 10 hours ahead, maybe 11. I can't remember, but like. Lewis would be coming in, and it's like 6.30, 7 o'clock, and I used to work like 20 hours a day. Some of these folks out here know that, I and mean, I've been trying to like, hey, when it's time for dinner, you got to put this, uh, put everything down. So Lewis, every, it never failed. Right when I was getting ready to walk out, hey, you want to do a Zoom? And I knew that I was in it for an hour. So that's how we did it, and we both had storyboards that were numbered and wrote notes on them. So each Zoom we had, I carried over the notes from one to the next, which I, I think I brought those today. Maybe we, people want to see them later, we can. Um, but that's kind of how it w worked was all Zoom. One minute. <laughs> Pam, we, well. we talked about this. <laughs> uh, so obviously we've spoken mostly about this incredible box that you uh, worked on so hard. Other than the box, what was your favorite prop from this film? There were th uh, th three mechanical props that were massive. Um, there was the uh, the glass knight, which was a huge undertaking. I couldn't find no one in the, uh, that I spoke with in the states even wanted to take this thing on, so I ended up having it built in built in England. Um, and then there was the um, Mona Lisa vault, which was it's incredibly big, massive, heavy. It had to, it could only fly on a wide body plane. You know, it was like, like that kind of thing. So those are the other two really big, fun props that um, kept me busy, kept our crew busy. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is uh, definitely a, a film that really featured the props. So it's wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you so much for being here. Glad, glad your pl plane made it on time. <laughs> Thank you, and I'll also. <laughs>
just wanted to also acknowledge um, there was a co-prop master on this, uh, Alan Bailey from the UK, who um, was you know a great partner to work with. I his work, I just wanted to recognize that as well. And, uh, oftentimes when we're working internationally, you will have a co-prop master, Dean Eilertson, who I've worked with a lot. I know he's out there listening to this, and I just wanted to recognize their help and, and uh, collaboration on all these projects. Thank it's you. It's always a collaboration. Thank you so much, Chris. Please welcome up Brad Elliott for Avatar The Way of Water. I'm not good with buttons, sorry. <laughs> the trailer's so moody. Yeah. Well, I noticed about three quarters of the Just way through. Just a delightful yeah, romp, right? <laughs> Beautiful music and not a lot of dialogue. Yeah, they didn't talk. Uh, well, this film is a huge leap forward in technology, again, with uh, the Avatar franchise. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the technology and uh, what you uh, needed to do to make the props work over water, underwater, uh, blue screen, green screen? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I came to this with um, some capture experience from stuff I'd done before, either um, like Tintin was my first real real foray, and then uh, working with Doug Harlocker, who um, everybody knows uh, on some other stuff. We'd never done anything like this ever, and I don't think anybody has. Like we, we built a tank on stage 18 at MBS that uh, had a 16-foot depth and an additional 12-foot sump in it, and it was the first time anybody had ever connected an air volume to a water volume, meaning you could run across the dock of one of the Mekkaina village homes and dive into the water and all of the performance and motion uh, would be captured seamlessly from the air to the water. So um, leave it to James Cameron to insist on technical innovation and making something that hasn't ever been done before, which obviously prevent, uh, presents a lot of challenges for us um, as far as how are we going to figure out how to do the props. Underwater, we had to deal, like for the first time, I'm really focusing on buoyancy um, in props and also all of the considerations that you need so that these things can be tracked so that the motion of what we're building is something that doesn't have to be reinvented. If there's a character on an elu underwater with a, a gun slung on them and we're in the current mode where we've, we're blasting these people with, I don't know how many knots of water, probably up to two knots, um, what is the behavior of that weapon going to be underwater? And is it the right buoyancy? It probably has to be a rubber because you obviously want to keep things safe for the actors. You're not going to put a real uh, hard surface AR on them to bounce around in case they get peeled off the, uh, the animal or the critter they're riding. So it was, it was a lot of invention. And you know, one of the things that I have to say is that everybody who's sitting in one of these chairs today, and Andy uh, virtually, we ride on the shoulders of the giants in this room. So thank you to everybody who brought us up here. Uh, shoulders of giants, in including large whale-like creatures. Yeah. <laughs> 
tons of fake critters. Uh, so uh, because you have to have these considerations like buoyancy, having the rubbers, um, having uh, the versions that are motion capture enabled, uh, how many different versions of any particular prop might you need? You know, for the stuff that gets markered to track, one of the things that you have in a volume with um, such an ambitious project like this is the more characters you bring in to the volume, the more the computers start to hate you. And at some point, they just say, all right, screw this, we're done. And the computer crashes. So a lot of times, and in those instances, the first thing that you have to do is you have to peel out the props that are being markered because the performance is what's critical. And the props can be animated back into hands. If you have a character riding one of those um, skim wing and they've got the, the rifle in their hand, you know, you've got a hand on the grip, you've got a hand on the foregrip. So the animators later on can figure out where that prop needs to be. So if the computer is starting to choke down because there's too many bubbles in the water or whatever it may be, um, you want to go to an unmarkered version for the, the sake of expediency, instead of building two different props, we just found little rubber caps that we could throw over the markers and then hide the fact that they were markers so that the computer couldn't see those anymore and it would uh, take a little pressure off. So um, we did kind of about the same number of, uh, of types of props that you would normally do in any kind of a film. It's just we had markered and markered capped sort of uh, props as well. Uh, so, for anyone who's not familiar, can you tell us uh, what you're talking about when you say markered? <laughs> so, performance capture, and we call it that as opposed to motion capture, because what we are really trying to do is get, you know, Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana, you want their performances. That's the whole reason that you're not giving this over to an animator to do. Uh, my younger brother's an animator at Pixar, and they do amazing work, but if you want the actor to gi be giving you their performance, you need to catch it. So. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do that. What we did are we use retroreflective markers. So these are little tiny balls, not the ping pong balls that you see everybody when they're making fun of this in a commercial or whatever. Uh, <laughs> these are uh, little tiny markers covered in retroreflective 3M tape. And much like um, a street sign or a license plate, which has that reflective pop, they reflect along the angle of incidence, meaning if you shine a light right at them, you're going to get that right back at you. Um, sort of like sometimes even in a photograph when you see people's eyes glowing. That's because the cones and the rods back there are acting like a retroreflective source. So those are the types of markers we were using and uh, there are different systems in which you can do that but this is, this is where we landed. And then obviously there are hundreds of cameras in the ceiling with IR infrared emitters in a circle around the lens because they want to pound that that uh, light down and catch whatever's there and get it reflected right back to the camera so that the sensors right on the cameras can pick up where those spots are. The computer knows to look for a specific configuration of those spots and then it knows, oh, I get it. That's, that's the Ekron model that we have or that's Jake's rifle. And it can in real time on the screen and in Jim's camera put those props and those actors into the right um, in bodies for the actors and into the right uh, colorway for the props. I hope that made sense. <laughs> well, it's, it's new technology that's moving the craft forward. Uh, so it's interesting to hear about 
maybe this is something that we will all need to be dealing with in 10 to 15 years to a certain extent. I have to say, it is new technology, but it's not an old concept. If you go back to the original days of Disney and Snow White, the animators didn't know how to get dancing right, so they used rotoscoping, right? They take, um, they take actors, they film them, and then they trace over those images uh, and that's all we're doing. We're, we're just, we're not doing it with film cameras and with pencils. We're doing it in a different way, but it's the same idea that the old Max Fleischer Studios and the old Disney um, animators used, and still sort of, I think they still use it today, to get real motion into animation. Yeah, it is just kind of modern rotoscoping. Yeah, we're just that's using different technology. <laughs> uh, so in this film, um, there are two sizes that uh, most of the main characters are. We have the humans who are approximately human-sized and the Navi who are two-thirds to double uh, in size to the humans. Now, we have actors uh, who are passing things back and forth between each other being human and Navi. How, how do you deal with the scale of props for something like that? If something has to be passed between a human and Navi, you, you build it in two scales. You know, at, at the final rendered version where we went to New Zealand to shoot the live action portion of this, obviously those props were all for the human actors who we were, we were shooting down there practically. But on the capture volume, you would often have to have two different scales, like, um, I can't remember if it's in movie three or movie two, and I'm not gonna violate any NDAs, <laughs> but let's say you've got a banana, and that's gotta go. <laughs> There's no banana. And that's <laughs> got to go between one and the other. Maybe, you know, somebody on set or myself is standing there taking it from one actor and doing sort of the Hollywood swap and handing it to the other actors so that what they grab is in scale, knowing that the human side of this will be reshot. But also, a lot of the footage that you see of the human actors are actually uh, captured. Um, even in the, the first film that uh, Andy Siegel uh, set so much great foundation work for. Um, that whole final scene with Korch and the amp suit, he's digital. Oh, crazy. <laughs> That's, uh, so, uh, like you said, this is, uh, you're working on the foundation of Andy Siegel's work from the first film. Um, can you tell us who designed the weapons and then how uh, did you need to take any of that work and alter it? it alter it for any of the props that appeared in this second film? For some of the stuff we did and for some of it we didn't. Like we didn't want to dismiss the first film. Um, and this was a, a talk with, with James Cameron. Um, like the guns, for example, that the RDA uses, that base rifle, we kept that because um, the logic being that, you know, our military has used the same base gun for quite a long time. The AK-47 has been a workhorse of the world for a very long time. So it didn't make sense to us to redesign a weapon for eight years in the future. We did redesign the sidearm because Jim just had some problems with what the old one looked like. Um, and we redesigned the breather pack as well because we have uh, Spider, a character who started off when we started shooting at about this tall, and now he's this tall. Um, but he was a kid who had to wear one of these things, and it was really big and chunky. And so we imagined that maybe they would up the technology that allowed them to breathe on Pandora and keep different iterations of that going. So that was one of the redesigns that we did. Yeah, and working with a kid who's growing up is always a little bit of a challenge. Uh, timing out, getting them on screen, and working with the props, and uh, having them still fit their growing bodies. Uh, 
Now, final question. Do you have a favorite prop from this movie? I think on this film, my favorite prop was the one that James Cameron said, yeah, okay. <laughs> but I have to say that <laughs> there was one moment, because our actors don't get much in the capture volume. It's all gray. You know, the terrain is all these weird different blocks. Um, and we had, we, I, I had a saddle made that uh, for one of the Ekron, and obviously those things don't exist, but we had a buck that we could ride and get all the motion of riding and, and really to know where the points of the saddle are for holding on. And it was the first time that we'd actually brought anything that was fully rendered. The folks at Weta Workshop built that for us. And uh, it came onto set and when I, we've strapped it onto the buck that we were using and Jim came out and saw it and, and he gave me a high five and instantly regretted it, <laughs> uh, just because I don't think I've ever seen him do that before. But uh, in that moment, that saddle was absolutely my favorite prop for the film. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Brad. Uh, here we have Brad Elliott, the first person ever to get a high five from James Cameron. I, I also have to give a shout out to my co-prop master in New Zealand, Melissa Spicer, who brought together an incredible team for the live action and took the designs that we had made um, in Los Angeles and in uh, New Zealand and, and ran with them and did a lot of the builds so that when I finally got down there to do live action, we were opening up boxes of beautifully made things. And so this could not have happened without Melissa. So if you're seeing this anywhere, Melissa, thank you so much. All right, thank you, Brad. Thank you, Melissa. <laughs> All right, please welcome on screen. Andrew M. Siegel, Andy Siegel, the prop master of The Fablemans. You really saved the worst for last, Dan. I don't know about your uh, programming. <laughs> oh, we'll have a good time. It's fine. Um, so this particular film is uh, a semi-autobiographical account of Spielberg's childhood. Uh, what was your process of working with him to create the reflection of his real life and also work with the timelines of production, serving the story. Uh, and was there anything he wanted to perfect accuracy? You know, actually in reality, Stephen was pretty good about all of that. He, but to be fair, me and my team and the rest of the art department and everybody else was really, really good. Mark Bridges, everybody, the thing you learn really quickly is you're not going to get the chance to show Steven and refine anything. You're going to bring it on the day and he's going to shoot it. And if he doesn't like it, he's not going to shoot it, but you better bring it because he's <laughs> the king and the king wants what he wants and he gets what he wants when he wants it. So but, uh, he was actually, you know, he was, he was pretty easy going about some stuff, but again, we really, you had a, we had a really good script and um, it, in that sense, we knew what we needed to get. I would show him boards of these are the cameras we're thinking of. The cameras changed a couple of times in the middle of production, but yeah, overall it was pretty good. I didn't really have a meeting with Steven until four days before we were supposed to start shooting. We had our prop meeting and the great thing about that prop meeting was I was sitting in a prep room at ISS on Zoom with uh, Brad Einhorn and Melissa Harrison trying to keep me from passing out. And Steven was on a yacht in France. So, and then four days later, we were at Rocky Peak shooting. 
I, I know where I'd rather take the meeting there out of those yeah. two options. ISS is great. It's a great prep room. It's a great, great, prep room. great prep rooms. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> uh, so talking about the cameras and editing equipment um, that are, of course, very central to the story, um, can you tell us a little bit about sourcing that equipment and how much of it was fully functional? Well, yeah, we were really lucky. Um, because all of our great sponsors, I mean, actually in that trailer, there's a camera and I don't remember exactly, but there's a camera from ISS and a lens from history for hire and another piece from hand prop room. Everything was like that. We could, we, everybody's got time budget constraints. We had seven and a half weeks of prep. So we just sort of had to get what we could get and say, this is it. We got really lucky a couple of times. Pam bought a really beautiful Aeroflex that we used in ditch day. I got crazy lucky and found um, the Bolex that, uh, you know, Sammy's given by his uncle in the camera store. And I found that on eBay for a price I could afford, which was pretty great. And then History for Hired made a box. Um, so a lot of it was just, you know, in those days there also weren't a lot of choices. The first camera you used, the brownie in the movie was the camera you would use. And the camera, not even Steven's first camera, but it's the camera that Sammy would use. Uh, so how much, uh, were you able to capture any footage on those prop cameras that ended up on no. on the final? <laughs> no, this was a whole ongoing discussion and the one that sort of sent me into a whirlpool of despair at the beginning <laughs> because they're like, oh, we're going to shoot it all practically. I'm like, well, we can't even get super eight film. And I did this whole research thing about a month before I started about how we would get eight millimeter film to run through cameras. We didn't do it. Then we tried to get super eight projector or eight millimeter eight millimeter projectors to run super eight film through them, which also was a non-starter despite all our best efforts. Um, we ended up building a little screen into the editing machine that he used, which Steven loved and found really valuable for the performance. Um, and we could run real film through some of the projectors like ditch day we ran. So that was 16 millimeter. Uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, altering those uh, that editing equipment. So the screen could work practically in front of the actor, if not practically as it was meant to uh, when it was manufactured. We went through a bunch of different editing machines. In fact, we had one that he loved. And then about a, two weeks before we shot, he's like, no, nah, I want one with a bigger screen. And I really want to run the film. And But we did what we could. Again, uh, Studio Graphics built us great boxes so that when Bert gives it to Sammy, he could unbox it. We didn't do that. Uh, he just lifts the top off. History Fire rebuilt the box that the editing machine came in. We were lucky to have a pretty clean editor. At the end of the day, the only thing we could really do is one of my assistants, Greg Edgar, and our video guy put a tiny screen inside the editor. And I actually think that that image is what you see on screen. We'd always talked about replacing it during prep, that we'll just replace it with whatever um, image Stephen wanted in there because we were telling a story. And the story was the mystery that Sammy's finding out about his parents. So we knew that there was going to be some control and in post we would do some stuff but i think actually in most of the shots it's really what we played back on the tiny screen inside that editor that mansfield editor that's pretty cool um so again going back to this being a period piece you were saying that history for hire rebuilt some boxes for you um this is a question we also asked gay what um how do you make the decision and when do you make the decision to either remake something or to find it vintage, specifically with some of those paper products? Well, the paper products, I know you had asked me earlier about the uh, about the paper plates and stuff. Those we really just bought. Those, it was just a matter of discussing with our great set dressing department, Karen O'Hara and her shoppers. 
and figuring out what we could practically get enough takes of because we they they originally said hey we found this really great uh tablecloth and i'm like yeah but it's made of tissue paper and <laughs> you found two of them that's not gonna work so we went back to the drawing board and they found 40 of something that was i think we backed them with plastic at the end of the day but what we did do um we really went to town on the lionel stuff we remade the boxes we did a lot of paperwork on those we remade the called train wrap that they wrap the trains in when they come out of the box. And I got to say, that was maybe Steven's happiest day on the movie. Uh, he, I showed him that train wrap out of the campsite and he got, he was like, thank you. Thank you for making this. I was like, ah, I didn't do anything. I just called Cher. <laughs> so, so this was a printer. Uh, so for, for the train <laughs> prop, uh, so you made the paper, uh, were the trains a recreation? Did you find them vintage? Um, can you tell us a little uh, bit more about that? Yeah, I did a lot of research into trains, and luckily, Lionel trains are something that people really aren't into, and they will talk to you. You know, every so often you find that thing. Cameras, Steve Bonds at History of Fire will talk about them forever. The train things, I found a lot of people who would talk about them, and I found a really nice guy in Arizona who refinished trains, and he sent me almost all the trains we used in the movie, who I then gave to special effects, and we added lights, we added smokers. Eric Rylander, who's a really a genius special effects technician who retired, came out of retirement to do a two week job of making that train crash. And six weeks later, six weeks later, I think that's the closest I've ever come to getting murdered on a movie set. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, well, it looks incredible. So fortunately, you didn't have to sacrifice your life for it. No. Uh, no. So a little later in the movie, uh, we have a monkey. Uh, what was it like working with the monkey, especially considering that you have a scene where the monkey is interacting with children and also eating, while I believe the children are eating as well? So how do you organize that between uh, the animal wrangler with the, pro the food that you have to have on set um, and keeping everybody safe and uh, including the monkey? Uh, in this case, it's actually... I'm sorry, but it's really simple. I, Crystal's the monkey that we've all worked with. Crystal comes out, Crystal does her thing. She's way better at her job than most of us are. At ours. Not really much you have to do. She's a handful and she takes pictures. She's great. Eats cherry tomatoes on cue. Does pretty much whatever you want all the time. She throws some tomatoes every once in a while, but again, she's pretty well behaved. Uh, probably better than uh, some some other crew members that we've all worked with. No, no comment. <laughs> uh, so, Andy, what was your favorite prop on this film? Okay, so you asked this question. I had one immediately, and then I was looking over my boards, and I realized I had two. One is uh, when they go in there shooting gun smog, and they have that stagecoach, and Sammy says, more wind, and his dad pulls the sign off and starts making more wind with the sign. Uh, that's actually it's actually my idea, and I really didn't think it was going to work, and we just did it, and it was great. So I like that. But the real favorite prop is I think Brad Einhorn bought that little boot that John Ford uh, takes matches out of at the end of the movie. And A, it's one of my favorite days ever on a film set, and B, I came up with the idea, and Greg Edgar made it happen. We took some little, just that paper you use to light matches, we put it across the bottom of it, and he lights, his, he lights the match on it when he lights the cigar, and it's just, it's great. Love it. Yeah, it's a really kind of special ending for, for Sam and the film, and it's nice that you yeah. have a little touch in it. Uh, thank you yeah, so much great. for being here virtually today, Andy. We hope to see you again in person very soon. Right. Yeah. Thank you. 
And at this time, I'd like to invite the rest of our panelists up here. Um, and if our audience has any questions, uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right. Look, there's people uh, like standing way back in there. This is fun. <laughs> thank you, everybody, for coming. Yeah, thank you. Uh, all right, so what questions uh, do you have for our uh, for our prop masters up here? You can just raise your hand. I'll, I'll call on you and repeat the question for uh, our podcast. Yes, in the hat. How did props get stuck with cast chairs? I have a theory. I don't know if it's true or not. Go for it. Back in the day when... It was, a, and Dennis certainly knows about this. Prop master was, you know, incredibly one of the most respected positions on a crew. The prop master showed up with ties, collared shirts, and um, the set decorator handed the set over to the prop master. And one of those duties was telling the, the grip or whoever, hey, don't sit on the chair. Don't sit on the furniture. This beautiful old, you know, sound stages and sets and beautiful furniture. And, and it may not have been a grip. It may have been someone more important. And they're like, hey, well, then get me a chair. And, um, and just a, a footnote to that, I, I think that there's um, director's chairs, cast chairs, producer's chairs. That's, that's what they are. You know, a lot of people, hey, can I get a chair? There's producer's chairs, cast chairs, director's chairs, and that's it. Everybody else's chairs with ours on the truck. Um, a gazillion dollars. <laughs> um, I think we ended up spending about 150 grand for the um, all the, all the R and D. It was a ton of R and D, and also there was the graphics, which you know, like you know, it wasn't long ago I would go to SAT and I'd get a quote for the box, but you know, the it's now it's like the graphics were so big it was like. You know, oh, hey, that's not bad. And then all of a sudden I got, you know, it was a, a, a quote for another five num five figures, and, and that was the graphics. So anyway, um, yeah, that was about that. Well worth it. Pam? I, I would love to know, each of you did such an incredible job on these films. Why did he say, yes, I'll take that job and make that film? So why did each of you say yes to the job that you said yes to. Why don't we start with Gay? Okay. Um, no one wanted this job. <laughs> I was the only one. That's not true. I was the only one that said yes. I lobbied uh, hard. Oh, you did? I didn't know that. Um, I really, I think it was implied that I was the only one that would say yes. Um, I was telling somebody else this. I kind of conjured this up. I uh, wanted something gritty and meaty and something that a good amount of prep that I could wrap my brain around and like um, exercise some skills that I hadn't in a while. And all of a sudden, this Chris Call called me up and said, hey, what do you think about this? He's the reason I got this job. Um, but uh, I said, no, I, I need to have it. I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. And I said yes before I completely read the script. <laughs> and then um, after I read the script, I go, what the? Did I do? Um, and I was in it, though. That was it. So, uh -huh. so before seeing the background numbers, too? <laughs> oh, before anything, I just said yes, 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 yes. 
and then I freaked out silently at home. <laughs> and then with Andy, I would he and I would commiserate together sometimes. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know why I got the ask for Avatar, but uh, I had a pretty strong foundation in capture, and I think that was probably something that pushed me forward. And I just, you know, basically needed a job. <laughs> it was either that or like a credit card commercial. So I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll try Avatar. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> well, you got a high five from James Cameron. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> he will never admit to that. I don't even know if it was witnessed, but I have it here in my heart. Um, I said yes to this movie just because I love the script. Uh, I read it, and like I said, there wasn't numbered, and then uh, I sat down with our production designer, Jason Casvarde, and our, our director, Amelia, and he couldn't hold back his excitement when he met me because I'd already kind of heard some stuff about how I worked, and he just didn't have a good poker face. <laughs> so he kind of offered, you know, he told me, we really want you, and if you, if you say yes, this is going to be the best project. I'm like... Yeah, of course I want to do it, and I never regret it. It was one of the best things I've ever done, so it's awesome. <laughs> For me, it was uh, I'd, I'd worked with Rick Heinrichs before. Um, ca the caliber of people, you know, um, is really important to me when we're going to spend as much time on set with, you know, the people that we're making these movies with. There's more time than actually we do with our own family. You got to make sure that. You get along, you like them, you want to you be with these people. So that's always, a, you know, something I consider in the caliber of people. You know, Ryan Johnson, I'd never worked with him, but I was a huge fan. The guy's so brilliant, so smart, writer-director. Um, it was an easy decision for me. My turn? Your turn. Um, for me, I mean, when somebody calls and says, do you want to work on a Spielberg movie, what kind of idiot says no? And it turns out it was this kind of idiot because I already had another job. So I thought, never in a million years would I get a call for a Spielberg movie, never in a billion years that I think I would get a call for a Spielberg movie, turn it down, and never in a trillion years that I think I would get a call for a Spielberg movie, turn it down, and then call back and beg to get it and get it, and then I had to do it, which was a whole nother story. Uh, yeah, I understand. Uh, Andy and Gay, you guys were filming around the same time and had some crossover between the props that you guys were, were working with. We were fighting with each other for Steve Bond services a, a couple of times, uh, you know. But l luckily, the time periods were a little shifted. I tended to win. Yeah, Gay's tougher than me, for sure. She wins. Go ahead. Uh, it's it's magical. I mean, the 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 thing that really drove this film was the fans. And I think, you know, looking at this stuff going up for auction, it was almost like watching your kids go off to college because you knew somebody was going to cherish these for the rest of their lives, just like, you know, the, the love and passion that I put into making these things. But it's it's just blows my mind just because that, you know, I've never in a million years. I remember when I first worked with the, or knew it was a Daniels project, I remember seeing uh, Swiss Army Man and going to the Arclight, and they had everything in glass cases from the movie, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. I really hope that you know one day I could go to Arclight and maybe see my props in glass cases. And then uh, COVID happened, because <laughs> actually our last day of filming was March uh, 13th, 2020. 
and that was literally our last day. We had one more day left, and that was all green screen, and uh, we shut down. And so I, I, they never really had a chance to do those kind of things. We actually never even had a rap party, still to this day. And uh, so it's 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 amazing to see your props loved and cherished by so many people, and uh, it's it's a cool feeling. <laughs> Uh, so, Josh, I have a question for you from Instagram from Sun Hashmi. Uh, so, pardon my pronunciation of these uh, Instagram handles. It's Sun HMI. Uh, what was the process to source the hot dog fingers? Well, I technically didn't make the hot dog fingers. Uh, that was our uh, special effects makeup person named Jeremy Hammer. And uh, when we went into that world with the hot dog hands, like I was saying, everything's a hot dog color palette. Uh, we kind of incorporated things that would go with it. So I remember the first time uh, they actually, so my, we, we shot in this giant facility in Simi Valley and uh, my uh, prop room was the men's locker room and then theirs was the women's locker room and then there was like this main, like a gym that used to be there and that's where the makeup room was. So we kind of all shared our own little community and I remember when uh, Michelle was casting her hands, I think there was a couple of videos of her trying to pull her arm out of the thing and then like seeing the whole process of it, when they brought those in and the Daniels were just like doing their thing, like slapping people with them. And I'm like, I gotta incorporate so many fun things into this. Like with the, you know, uh, when we were dressed in that hot dog hand world where Michelle was like, you know, knitting with her giant things or like having like the giant remote and you know, just all that stuff. So I, you know, I, as much as I'd love to take that, that's like usually like one of the things like, what was it like with those hot dog hands? I didn't make them, but I know the people that did and they did a phenomenal job at you know, recre recreating a hot dog that would go on each finger and making it look like it was a real hand. <laughs> Let's hear from each of you. What was your first prop master job? Where My did you start? First prop master job. You've all seen it. Um, demonic toys. Uh, <laughs> I know it's in your top ten. Mine too. Um, so it was. I was the assistant to prop master Greg Pfeiffer. And um, it was one of my first jobs that I had doing props. And it was Charlie Band, low budget horror movie um, action. Um, but Greg, midway through, uh, got ill and they just became me. And so um, it was uh, a lot of blood, some guns, and um, some demonic toys and puppets. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I worked, my first prop master job was on a show called uh, Mr. Show with Bob and David. Um, oh, Mike, there are, th you're the ones. <laughs> now I know who's seen it. Uh, and it was, it was again a case of, I, I was an assistant prop master on season, I don't remember, maybe two. And then uh, the prop master, Ken Russell, uh, got a real job and left to go do that. And uh, they were just like, well, I don't know, Brad, you're probably fine. So that's that, how I got my first prop master job. Uh, my first prop master job, I think I was a year into the industry, and uh, it was in 2012. And actually, my, my twin brother, who's in the front row, he was on it too as a makeup artist. So we were in it together. But it was just, uh, what was the name of that movie? I Do. I do. Uh, and it was, it was a fun project. I knew absolutely, did not know what I was doing, and I, it, it was just a scary experience, but working on a, it was a low budget film and you know, everybody else around us was a, uh, you know, supportive team and that was, that was what kind of made it. Um, but yeah, here we are <laughs> from that little movie to all the way here and it's, it's been a road. <laughs> Very first prop master job is, uh, 
1989, not necessarily the news. That's it. <laughs> I mean, listen, there's, you know, that's, that's the first. I mean, you really want to go back to that, so. Andy? Yeah. Uh, I did a movie called Leather Jackets. I'm not sure how I got it, but my first prop job was Pee Wee's Playhouse, a job that I was wholly unqualified for and really <laughs> lied my ass off to get. And I did, so. And, and who hasn't lied at least a little bit to get a job? Uh, now, next question from Instagram for Chris. Uh, this is from Gumby Clayman on Instagram. Uh, what is all of the glass made of? And second part of the question from Mary Proppins uh, is, how did you get those, uh, those breakaway sculptures to smash so clear? Uh, that's a great question. So um, in, in Europe, UK, as, as I expressed earlier, it's a lot of that stuff is the set decorator. It goes to the set decorating department and then we'll filter down to the prop master or the charge hand props on set. In this particular case, uh, Rick Heinrichs, uh, he sent John Dexter, supervising art director, to Czech Republic. And John was there for a week or two, literally like left set, you know, uh, right before we started shooting. And he's working with these glass makers, you know, Czech Republic's known for their crystal. So believe it or not, all that stuff was was real. And that's why it looked so good. And they had like, some stuff would be one take each, some stuff would be two takes each. And there was, uh, we had this huge soundstage in Belgrade. And there was a huge area that had all the, all the crystal. The set decorating department also had an in-house um, they had a staff department. They actually they made old school sugar candy glass, and um, and that had a lot of air bubbles in it. But they they were absolutely able to mold some stuff. And but the big scene, I think, what she's asking about, Mary Proppins, uh, great name is is yeah, is it's all real stuff. So how did you keep everyone safe? Uh, I know some of the characters are wearing some very uh, thin soled shoes without a lot of top to them. Yep, <laughs> knock my tooth out. <laughs> um, it, it was just coordinated properly with the um, uh, stunt, stunt department. Yeah, I don't know, and, it was, and also to your point, the floor was glass. In that glass onion, that was all bl gl glass tile. So that's, that's a pretty incredible feat, like keep everybody safe with, with real glass, which uh, it was broken everywhere. So that was a really cool scene. Yeah, so there, there, like I said, there was a staff department there that could do, um, and, and I, like because, I mean, I, listen, I don't need to go in and you don't need an extra manager on that stuff. They had, you know, Alan Bailey and, and the set decorating department, they, were, they wrangled all that. I really had very little to do with the breakaway glass. Further questions? Uh, I have one off Instagram that uh, I'm unfortunately I can't find the name of right now. Uh, but how do you, as prop masters, organize your department? How do you determine uh, for each project how many people you need on your crew? I know, Gay, you touched on this a little bit. Uh, but how, how do you uh, figure out what the appropriate setup of the property department is for any given feature? Well, I, I kind of have a rule, if, you know, if it's over 50 people, you're going to need more, you know, that person, okay, now we have 100, I need another person. Um, if it's sitting in a movie theater, we don't need that many. It's popcorn, you get to walk around, eyewear, houses. But when they have action, um, that's kind of my rule is like I just look at the volume and the numbers. 
And then after day one, were we a success? Do I need more people? You know, are we killing ourselves? Then, you know, I go to, to the bank and go get more people. <laughs> you know? um, that's usually how I do it. I, I got so fortunate on this film. The, I had never worked with Josh Michael Cheek before. He was new. Um, Casey Burr and I had worked together a few times before. Gabby and I had worked together a few times before. Um, but having them all together at the same time, because of we, we were able to work together in this, and we were there every single day, man, it was just, I thought it was a blast. I know there were horrible days of long hours, and it was dodgy getting home for sure. Um, but I would look around and go, I'm the freaking luckiest girl in the world. They're the best people for the job. It really, number one thing about this movie was the right amount of people and the right people to do this job. Yeah, I mean, uh, hiring the right keys is everything. You know, like I said before, we are only as good as the people who are working with us and the shops that we're out to and working with. And I think a large part of budgeting, at least in my experience, is it's our job to educate the producers on what we need because you are always getting, well, why do you need that many people? And it's, you have to go through it again and again and again and educate and re-educate and say, well, because we're doing all these things and you have all this background, and then we always want to cover what we don't know is coming because there's always that aspect of the thing you don't know. Every single time. So you have to prepare for the thing that you don't know. And usually that involves having a really talented crew that has a little extra bandwidth than you can anticipate. And so I push hard for that. So at the end of a, you know, I mean, however many days of a shoot it is, that we're not all dead at the end of it. You know, these are long days, 12 hours if we're lucky, 16 if it's not going well. and. Um, you know, you do those five days a week, you do those six or six days a week, and you, you do that on a long run. If there isn't a hiatus built in there, you have to keep you have to keep your people fresh, and that sometimes requires some extra people just to do some heavy lifting on a day. Yeah. So, it's educating producers is I think one of the hardest things we do. Uh, when it comes to crew, I mean, on Everything Everywhere All At Once, it was me and I had two main assistants. It was a, a small movie. We were 38 days. Um, and when it came to, you know, having day players and people on, if we did a splinter unit, we bring somebody else in. And, you know, the, a lot of the bulk of our background were all the same people with IRS lanyards running around screaming. So it wasn't like <laughs> with our main cast, you know, it, uh, it was mainly Michelle and Key or, you know, with Jamie. So it just kind of depends on what we're filming the day you know, if we have a lot of heavy stuff, but we bring in extra people. So it's, uh, and it goes to different movies. Like, uh, you know, I'm currently on a feature film that, you know, we had 11 weeks of prep and it's 58 or 56 shooting days. So it's, it just depends on our budgets too. So um, with that one, we kind of, you know, work as a team and I've worked with uh, my assistants for a really long time. And, and when it comes to that, you know, you have a good friendship and understanding of what they're capable of doing. And you know, if we need more help, we'll bring in more help. And sometimes we get pushed back from producers, and you know, you have to explain to them what you need and how it's you know, like they just think it's handing a something small. But there's also the beginning, the middle, and the end of that day that you need help with. You know, they may not be handing out a prop, you know, 12 hours of the day to somebody and taking it away. But you know, you got to put it all away and categorize it and make sure it's safe for the next shooting day. Um, so, you know, depending on what we're filming is usually depending on how many you know, people we have, but I like to 
refer to my assistants as my friends more than <laughs> assistants because you spend 60, 70, 80 hours a week with these people, you become, you know, really good friends. And that's, you know, what you got to look for in assistance. And, uh, yeah. So Eisenhower said, it's not the plan. The plan is nothing. Planning is everything. So for me, and Dan Spaulding is out here somewhere. He's my, um, my collaborator. I love the guy so much. He'll, he'll be the first to say, I, I don't personally, I don't like a big crew. Um, I like, I, because I find that if someone's not engaged full time, um, you know, they can get distractions. So, uh, it doesn't matter what film it is. I'll start off with, uh, a prop department coordinator because in today's world with the shipping, the clearance, the P card reconciliation, uh, there's so much that's, uh, uh, Dennis, I'm sure is laughing saying, yeah, we had to do all that too. And I never had a prop <laughs> department coordinator, but, uh, <laughs> I've had once, if it's true. So since 2005 or six, I've had a prop department court, a very necessary position in my opinion, uh, because then I can focus on making the movie. Um, just recently I found myself, uh, I'm prepping a movie and I'm doing all the reconciliation. I'm spending more time doing that than actually making the movie uh, because it was just me. I was the only one really working on the film uh, for a few weeks prep. So uh, it's prop department coordinator, assistant prop master, um, and then from there it can be another assistant or maybe an armor, just depends on what the film is. But, you know, I've been so lucky because, like, it doesn't matter if I'm in L.A., Vancouver, we were in Pennsylvania last year, uh, and, and amazing crew, like, and, and I like working and I like, I, I, I enjoy the physical idea of just being busy, you know, and, I, and not sitting back and because I just I like being engaged so all these towns I've been to you know I've had amazing people working with the Vancouver great crew we had this guy and uh, we met in Serbia on, on Glass Onion his name is Marco and um, we were down in the Dominican Republic recently on uh, the Roadhouse and um, we had to bring Marco in and the producers you know they very quickly they all came to me and just said man that was that was really we see it, we get it because they were at first they weren't they're like ah, you're hiring locals and I said, hey, we'll, we'll do it as long as we can make it work. But just being blessed with pe people that really, you know, uh, you got to be all in. That's, if I could tell you, share nothing else. Whoever you have in your crew, you got to be all in. If you're not, go sell ice cream or, or do something different. You know, it's not the right industry. Andy? Um, you know, I'm going to say, I'm going to be a broken record. But w like Chris, I don't like a giant crew because the more people, the more questions you have to answer, which is why on Fablemans, I turned all that over to Melissa Harrison, my assistant, who is the brains, the looks, and the brawn of the operation. I don't know exactly what it is. I do. And she just kept saying, we need more people. And she would hire more people. And because it was supposed to be a tiny, tiny movie where we only had three people. I don't think we ever had less than a crew of five, plus Molly Reese, who did a great job with the food. Um, but we had Greg Edgar on the truck, literally working himself into the ground. We lucked into Paul Beauvais when uh, someone else dropped out. And then we found Sky Nathan, that, who I don't know if any of you know him, but is just a ray of sunshine to my dark cloud. So, you know, you hire the people. And they all fulfilled a certain, a certain role. And it was really actually kind of a pleasure to watch because even with our day players, people, for some reason, the group that we had, it was easy to fall in with, I think. And we had a bunch of people come in and go out and it all seemed to mesh really well. But it, one of the things that did lead me to realize is that you need all the people you need. Like you just can't short yourself or you're going to get in trouble. Um, and we didn't, and it worked out really well. Can I add one more? 
Of course, you can add one more just thing. One more thing is, uh, w when I'm w wherever it is we're working and and I'll meet people. It's really trying to find out someone's strengths and weaknesses. You know, we're not all clones, and I don't I don't want a crew of everybody that's got the exact same skill set as me. So um, I, I that's really important. Finding out what someone's strengths are and what their weaknesses are, and how they're gonna how you're gonna make them fit into that into the crew. Yep. Carissa. Who's your favorite actor or actress you've ever worked with? Um, Margot Robbie, hands down. Um, I've worked with her twice, and I almost killed her in this movie. <laughs> she would tell me every day, what do we got today? And I'm like, I know. Today you got to throw up. <laughs> today you have to write an ice sculpture that's really ice, and <laughs> you got you to gotta grind it. Um, uh, and you have to have a snake attached to you. And she never complained. She was always prepared. Uh, beautiful human being, beautiful person. She just, uh, to me, it could have gone a totally different way uh, with me and how much I had to deal with her and um, her in interacting with the props. And she never made me feel like we weren't working together on it. So that's, that's my guess. These are really hard questions. <laughs> I, the first, the first thing that comes to mind is actually um, Jamie Bell, uh, Tintin. He came to set with his hair quaffed up like Tintin did, even though it was a capture movie. And I, um, I was the one who was running the dog Snowy around on the set, and we just kind of got along really well. And um, I think if I have to be anybody's dog, it would be him. Uh, well, I've, I've worked with a lot of actors, and it's, it's, it's always uh, fun to get to meet new people. And it's probably I'd, I'd go back to mainly the whole cast of Everything Everywhere All at Once. We're, we're still friends. I text and Jamie and Michelle and Key. We've stayed in touch. And it's rare to walk away from a movie with being friends with the actors. And you don't go into it going, oh, I can't wait to be friends with Harry Styles or Florence Pugh. But when the movie wrapped, like we all stayed in touch. We were going into a pandemic. Uh, and you know, I, I, I text them, like even last night when I saw, I went to the Everything Everywhere Vanity Fair party and everybody in the room wanted to say hi to Michelle or Key and just like take a photo with them. And when I walked by, I went to go get Key a glass of wine. Uh, Michelle saw me and she just like stopped what she was doing and ran over and gave me a hug. And she's like, whisper me, I love you so much. And I was like, I'm so proud of you. And like throughout the whole night, she would just like pull me aside and just like want like a special moment to get away from everybody. And that's like, it's they're like true friends. And that's what's, that's amazing when you get to make that uh, connection with uh, your cast and even your crew. So yeah, I'd say the, the cast of everything everywhere all at once. <laughs> Uh, it feels like we're name dropping. I hate this, but uh, honestly, but um, you know, it, it probably is who you end up doing. You find yourself doing multiple movies with, like Gay, and uh, so that's uh, for me. Depp. I've done I don't know six movies with Depp and four with Bale. And uh, but if I have to pick one, it's it's Tom Cruise. <laughs> he's honestly he's I've done seven or eight movies with him. He's the he's he's amazing. I've been really fortunate to work with a lot of, I mean, I've worked with mostly really, really nice 
great actors. So I've been really lucky. On Fablemans, it was really great that Seth Rogen was in it because I've done a few things for him. And every so often we just look at each other and go, dude, can you believe that we're on Green Hornet and now we're on the Fablemans, which is just <laughs> stupid. So. Yeah, they they did put them on the A24 website, but I believe they're sold out now. They they go pretty fast. Everybody really wants them. <laughs> Stock up for Halloween. Yeah. I would say. Yeah, I will say this though: if you want the dildo um, pogo stick, <laughs> Jeannie Jeannie can make you one because uh, she made mine. <laughs> I see a question in the back. Teresa? So what's one thing when you signed on to the movie you had no idea how you were going to do and how did you approach it? Ugh. Somebody else go first. I'm going to think about yeah, this. Right. Oh. Andy, why don't we start with you? you uh, for me, it was really obvious because they came in going, we're going to do everything practically. We're going to shoot it. And, and again, as I explained earlier, that just wasn't going to happen. We weren't shooting things on eight millimeter film. And then it just took a couple meeting, a couple quick zooms with Steven where he, you know, I said, that's just not the way we do things anymore. He's like, oh, no, no, of course, of course, of course, except for the editor. Then, and so that's when we came up with the idea of the screen. But um, that was the thing. It was, we're going to do everything practically. Then how the hell are we going to make all that food for all those food scenes? Okay, I got mine now. So um, in um, uh, that week where I locked myself in my house uh, and I got a text from the production designer, Florencia Martin, said, hey, we're on a tech scout and uh, Damien just came up with, he does want um, a little person to be riding a pogo stick on the stage. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, yeah, we can do it. And he goes, yeah, but he wants it, you know, he wants it to look like a penis. And I'm like, all right. And I'm text. We're texting this back, and I immediately look up, you know, 1920s pogo sticks. And then, strangely enough, the profile of it is kind of penis-like. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm home free. This is going to be easy. So I did a quick sketch of just emphasizing the profile of it and putting some boxing bags as the balls underneath um, where his feet would be. And I sent that over in a picture. And they goes, he loves it. I'm like, yay! Um, about um, two months later, hey, how's that coming along? And I said, well, we got the, you know, I got a vintage pogo stick and we're kind of working on it. He goes, and I showed it to him and he goes, oh, no, no, I want a whole costume. I mean, I want it to be a whole costume. And I also want it to shoot out um, on the stage. And I'm like, ah, that was a very how the hell are we going to do this type of moment. So with the help of uh, um, uh, our Jim uh, effects, we were able to make that happen. And Jeannie, so. Uh, this is an easy one for me. Um, there's a scene in Way of the Water where Spider, the kid, is underwater and he's swimming around and they're trying to find Jake and he sees um, a Navi-looking body uh, and it turns out that it's Quaritch and he decides he's going to save the bad guy because, I don't know, there's a sequel. So, <clears throat> so he drags him out and he's got to inflate this, uh, this vest that he's wearing. 
And these, these emergency buoyancy vests that, that we've all seen everywhere, um, they're made to inflate at the surface. Nobody wears these things and then swims down 12 or 15 feet and then inflates them deciding like, oh, I guess I'm in water now. So the, the amount of pressure that's exerted on the outside of that vest uh, makes it not want to inflate underwater. And even though our effects team in New Zealand were uh, really smart guys, I, maybe they were smart enough to say like, I'm not touching that. <laughs> so, and we have a minor. This is a kid. He's not going to be doubled by a stunt performer. I'm putting this around this kid's neck, and now I'm re-engineering a purchased, engineered, and tested item in our department, which makes me very nervous. I'm in uh, constant contact with effects and stunts, and Jack, who's a smart kid, and his parents. We ended up having to overpower the vest, which had a release valve, so we knew if we put too much gas into it, when he came up, it would automatically vent. We are using the factory stuff there. Uh, we did a couple tests on it, and um, we showed it to, to Jim, and it inflated in about four seconds. And it was a little slow, because we still have all the crushing weight of even 12 feet of water. Uh, anybody that knows you go down, you're going to have to equalize at that point. Um, and the night before, Jim says, we've got to get that to under two seconds. Which we figured out with a half an hour to spare, <laughs> uh, learning how to cut and reshape those vests. But that was the, that was the oh crap, I don't know how we're going to pull this off. Let's go learn about these vests again. Um, I probably have to say it might have been the, the headsets uh, were like, the, oh crap, how am I going to do this? Because basically, I had to start, uh, what kind of headset would this be? Where did they get it from? And uh, I just kept thinking the Motorola headset with the, the flip out side was always something I thought of when I, I think I had one in my kit. And my assistant said, no, you don't. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I do. I'm going to go look for that. And then I never found it. But they, <laughs> uh, so I ended up finding those two. And I think I ended up uh, upsetting the eBay algorithm because I was buying them so much that they went from being like $20 to like 200 I was like, there's no way. So, something's going on because I had to buy them all. But uh, instead of having them 3D printed, I wanted them to be real. So I ended up getting those and starting from the beginning and gutting them out and seeing how big of a LED could get in there because you, uh, normal ones just blink blue. These ones needed to turn yellow, green, and red. And our visual effects uh, uh, person, Zach, he said that, he's like, no, you can just have it light up white and I can just key it. And I'm like, why would I want to do that? Let's make it actually function. And that was probably the, the trickiest thing to do was get those to be uh, light up. And then day one of filming came where we had our, uh, uh, you know, Michelle had to put these headsets on. And they're mainly meant to put on your ear in a 1997 uh, Honda that you can't like, uh, you know, don't have Bluetooth in. So they're not meant to be, you know, sat in a chair that goes spinning 20 miles an hour backwards and then stops out of a dime or kung fu fighting through the air. So we had to overcome the fact of uh, how are they, they're going to be floppy. And I went down the road of like maybe, oh, I got to get an ear mold and do all this stuff. But when it came to it, we just top stuck them to their heads. And they were totally fine with that. And even uh, Key uh, made up this elaborate story that one of my assistants put uh, hot stuff glue in his ear. And throughout the day, his hearing was getting worse and worse. But he's such a good actor that I thought that that actually had happened. And I was like, 
Key, we got to go to the hospital. And I actually took the hot stuff and glued my hands together. And I was like, this is permanent. And I can't get my hands apart. And he was like, Josh, I'm so sorry. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm like, that's what I thought. Now, here's the solvent that gets the glue off of it. And I was like, oh, Josh, you got me. But he tells that story to a bunch of people. And I'm like, yeah, those headsets, Key, those are, <laughs> those are the bane of my existence right now. So it was great. I've done headsets before. They are, they're really challenging. Anything that ever goes on the actor's face is, uh, yeah. those are usually the toughest props. Did you do RGBWA and, and on DMX with the uh, lighting board or what? I wish I could say that's what we did, but it was way more simple. It was just basically a, a single LED that was connected. It was, I think I used those uh, USB ones that go in the back of uh, TVs and then just broke them all the way down and just used a tiny litho battery with a tiny micro SD charging unit all compacted as much as I could into that little thing and that's all it was and it was controlled with RF remote and then that's put really one in cool. the, the actor's hands. I mean, I, I took it to a bunch of people and they were like, this can't be done. We have to have these microchips. I'm like, it already exists. It's literally on the back of my TV right now. I was like stripping those down and <laughs> they were, I mean, I had a million people tell me those are gonna have to be hardwired and they have to wear a battery pack. I'm like, they can't. They're gonna be doing martial arts with a fanny pack There's a nunchuck. <laughs> you're, you're, cra you're the crazy one. Um, <laughs> So then I was like, no, I was like, let me just figure this out. And I was like, here you go. Here's all this stuff. And they're like, Hi, uh, okay, yeah, we'll assemble it. I'm like, oh, there you go. <laughs> Easy done. <laughs> so. <laughs> I knew the puzzle was going to be, like, there was no mistaken about the puzzle. And the, uh, of the three props, the puzzle, the Mona Lisa vault, and the, the night, the glass night. I'm like, oh, the glass night. Like, that's, I got way bigger problems than that. So, um. And, and, you know, I was calling, I was on the phone with Legacy, uh, every company in town, let's just put it that way. And I couldn't find anybody that was, no, man, like that's a, so uh, we ended up, you know, taking little blocks of uh, acrylic. And this company in, um, in the UK had a six axis CNC, and they, they, they had this um, glue and if they, uh, it was a clear glue, and if you put UV on it, it would, you, you couldn't see the glue dry. So what they would do is, the first thing they did was just a foot, and they glued a bunch of blocks together. They put it on this massive, I mean, it would fill this room, six axis CNC, two robot arms, and, uh, and so we knew that it worked with the, uh, with the foot. So now, you, you just basically, okay, so you got a foot, now you got a leg, now you got an arm, now you got a head, and you're gluing that together. So it was, but to get to that point, um, you know, because of the puzzle and because of the Mona Lisa, I was like, the night? Are you kidding me? That's the thing that's going to bring me down on this show? <laughs> and so, so I'm leaving Greece a week early to go back to Serbia and receive all this stuff. And I'm on a Zoom call with a production designer, art director, everybody's in different places. And I'm seeing Rick Heinrichs put up this plan and he's of the set, the Glass Onion set. And you can, and basically... The, I don't know if everybody's seen this or not, probably not, but the, the knight is supposed to be holding a, uh, a crossbow, and it's part of a gag where this crossbow is going to, it's aimed right at uh, Edward Norton. And uh, I'm looking at the plan, and I'd ha seen all these plans from the beginning. I'm like, wait a minute, Rick. And I just say this in passing. I go, you've got that knight flipped the wrong way. You know, it's, and, and he said, what? And like we continued the Zoom. I'm like, no, no, it's built the other way. As soon as the Zoom ended, my phone rang. 
And Dan Spaulding, who's here, knows this man. Like, I just, I got that, you know, the, 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 the feeling in the belly and the throat. And he said, hey, man, you know, I've, I've, you know, we've approached this like you're an art director. This is on you, Chris. You, you, you really messed this up, and you're going to have to fix it. Meanwhile, it's being built, packed up in, for shipping from the U.K. And so I get in, I have a two-hour uh, ride through the uh, Peloponnese uh, southern greece uh, through all these hills and mountains back to the airport i'm getting out of this taxi to go to my plane and the phone rings and it's rick and he says hey uh what are you doing i'm like well i'm getting out of the plane and getting on i'm getting out of the taxi getting on the plane right now he goes i just wanted to say i apologize i i realized i didn't share that information i changed it and i didn't tell you so we had to in short i said okay that's fine that made me feel a little bit better but we had to i'm calling the uk and i'm like we got to cut the arm off and we, we got to fix this and so that the guy is built it's like if i cut it and it falls apart like you know you're not going to have a night you know and but we we risked we took the um you know just weighed it out and he cut it he did a perfect cut and we had literally had to switch it and it it worked out fine but that was one of those things where i'm like are you kidding me the night is good that's that's what's going to take me down on this so uh definitely the night all right we have time for one more question who wants to go last yes go ahead What, what keeps you all going back to props, even though we don't necessarily have the same recognition that a high five is maybe sometimes the best that we'll get? Mm. Um, I literally fell in love with props. My sister directed The Howling Six, another one of your favorite movies. Um, <laughs> and she asked me to come out from Dallas. I had graduated from college a year. And um, I'm on the phone with her, and she says, yeah, you come out and be my assistant. She's going to be the director, and you'll just, you know, and I'm like, all right, maybe I can, oh, didn't want to give up my job completely. I had a pretty glamorous job of um, working for a apartment complex, um, and, but I had to wear a uniform. I had to wear a pantyhose and a uniform, and uh, when I got out here, and I realized that I could wear whatever I wanted to wear, and I could cuss, that was a big plus. <laughs> on the movie set, um, but the, I was her assistant, but the first day of um, filming, I just was like, what the hell is that? And it was the prop department. I was like, this is, this is cool. And it was an instant love affair and it hasn't stopped. It's my only love besides my dogs. Um, but it, you gotta really love it <laughs> um, <laughs> because it takes over your life um, and your house and your garage and your storage facility and your car. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I don't know what it was about it, but it's still with me now. I just, I dig it. That's an easy one, thank you. <laughs> uh, I walked out of a movie theater when I was six after seeing Star Wars A New Hope and I was a different kid. And I went home, and I've always been a maker, and I made myself a lightsaber, and I made a blaster out of Lego, and I played and played and played. And it's that same sense of wanting to make, and 
maybe someday there'll be a kid who sees something that we've done and it will fire their imagination in a brand new way. And if we can get that, then it's a huge win. I still like making. I make for myself in my garage when in the 14 seconds every day that are for me. And, um, and I'll never stop doing that. So that's why I'm here and why I love this job. And I also don't think I'm qualified to do anything else. <laughs> no, we're qualified for everything. Yeah. I started doing props, or I started in the film industry because I, I loved making movies and making things. And my favorite part about a movie was the movie itself, but mainly the behind the scenes. And when I first came here, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't even know. I just wanted, I wanted to work in the film industry. And that, like, I remember, like, the first week I moved here from Michigan, uh, driving around and seeing, like, crews on the streets making movies. And I just, it's that, it's, I don't, I don't know if anybody else gets this, but it's like that movie magic, like, that makes you smile and go, oh my gosh, what are they filming? I want to see. And I think I, camera phones were still not that big back then, but uh, it, you just, I didn't even, I just wanted to take it all in and bottle that. And it was so cool. And I just, I went to film school and I, you know, got to, uh, you know, experience things for the first time. And that's what I, that's where my joy comes from. My happiness is experiencing things for the first time uh, that I really want to do. And that was kind of the film industry. And being a prop master, nothing is the same. Like, I mean, grips, electric, you know, they're running cable, they're running, you know, putting up stands and stuff like that. But for a prop master, we have a different scene every single day. And we get to put those props in the actor's hands. And we get to create. Like, things come from nowhere. Like, uh, you know, even like in Everywhere All at Once, you know, I. I, I got to make things that were just fun and then also getting the to make new friends and getting to experience these things with these friends and then those friends go on to the next one. I've been doing this for only 12 years and it's I still feel like a small fish in a big pond amongst these amazing prop masters and some of these prop masters have made the movies that I, you know, made me want to get into this industry so it's an honor to be up here. But the uh, the 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 practicality of the things that we do and bring to the screen uh, is what keeps me coming back. I mean, with everything we all at once, it was it was not easy uh, to <laughs> all of those props. I mean, my wrap gift to the crew was a shirt that had a, a donut on it with every prop name, so the producers could look at that and go, "Wow, you did all that for just your little teeny budget?" But uh, <laughs> uh, and I, they did say that too. Like, I didn't realize there was that many props. I'm like, yeah, well, you guys saw my budget breakdown, but. Uh, they, uh, it's, it's that, that movie magic that I always tell people I love about making movies and, you know, the, the, the awe-inspiring that we do to people. You know, one day it's, it's hopefully somebody from Michigan sees that, you know, when we make our videos and our movies and our behind the scenes, like I used to love watching, that it inspires them to go after their dreams and come out. You don't have to go to Los Angeles. They make movies in every state, but getting into that and, you know, also being positive, be a very positive, joyful person to be around. That'll get you really far in this industry. So, yeah. If I understand your question correctly, so uh, <laughs> it's, it's about if you're right, right. But there was also you don't get the high five. It's what I heard that. Yeah, well, in the eyes of the beholder, I think. But uh, so it, it, I will just say really quickly: at 14, a light bulb went off in my head, and I was that, uh, that there was I was going to make movies. I was going to go to Hollywood, and I was going to make movies. 
and that was in my windshield and everything else before that was in the, the rearview mirror seriously so um making movies is a labor of love um i think that hope Parrish, you know said it best recently when i she said being with such passion to being a prop master is, it's the greatest job on a crew um and i really I, I, I totally agree with her, and I couldn't ever say it as eloquently as she did. She kind of touched on it earlier without actually saying that, but it really is, the, and it's a labor of love. It's not an easy job, and you don't get recognized, and that's fine. To be honest with you, I, I find that whole, like, I'm not into the awards personally. I'm not into, I don't need someone telling me what a great job. I know, you know, it's how I feel about it, but the greatest thing in the world, all of that, is that the conversations put to rest is when the, you get a call and it's a director or a producer or an actor who's a producer that calls you back for the next one that's the thank you that's you did a great job i don't need them telling me you know what a great job is it's, it's it's uncomfortable but if you've worked with somebody two three four times five times and then there's another person two three four times actually to be honest with you i like this question but when i go to look at a resume the first thing i look at is how are they continuing to work for somebody a second time, a third time? Because I think that speaks more about a resume than anything else, is, is getting called back. That is your award. Andy? Uh, listen, this job is hard. Uh, no lie, I actually talked two people out of doing props just last week here in Atlanta. They said, hey, should I do props? I'm like, no, it's really hard. If you don't love it, do not do it. And I will complain every single day, but it is the best job in the world. Because first of all, you get to work with super cool people, like the people on the stage, the people in the audience. You get to work with really amazing, creative people who can literally do magic. And you get to walk on sound stages where sculptors have made cliffs out of styrofoam and cars are flying through the air and stuff's blowing up. It's awesome. And then you get to work with actors who make people laugh and cry and, that, and all that stuff is just great. And we're part of something bigger. Uh, you know, we get to bring something to something that brings joy to people all over the world. It's amazing. So it's the best job. I don't know why you'd want to do anything else. I, I think that puts a really great pin on it. Why would you want to do anything else? <laughs> Uh, so I want to thank everyone for coming in today. I want to thank our panelists. Thank you. Kay, Brad, Josh, Chris, Andy, in absentia. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors, History for Hire, ISS, the Hand Prop Room, our hosts here today, the Hollywood Heritage Museum. Please uh, stick around. The museum is open today. Is that correct? No, not. But, but you're here, so take a look around. Uh, come. Uh, yes, we have uh, our merchandise booth for uh, Property Masters Guild merchandise. We've got uh, some new beanies and hats and stickers uh, that are being premiered today. Uh, so again, thank you everyone for being here. Uh, please make sure to tag us on social media on any of your posts. Uh, visit our website, www.propertymasters.org. Um, if you haven't already seen these fabulous films, they're a great time. All of them are at our uh, incredible and all of these prop masters did such incredible work so thank you all for your for being here today and for sharing your insights uh, and thank you all for uh, supporting the property masters guild Woo!